Talk shows in the 1990s focused mostly on the outrageous, family drama, out-of-control teens, secrets, and surprises. But one secret set off a chain of events that tragically took a life. That crime started a national conversation that left the country searching for where to place the blame. Was it the talk show's fault, or was the one to blame the man who pulled the trigger? This week's episode is The Jenny Jones Show Murder, Part 1. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. What are your opinions on trashy talk shows? Did you watch them growing up? We, in our family, did not miss an episode of Jerry Springer. We loved Ricky Lake. We loved Jenny Jones, Sally Jesse. During the summertime, Maury, Montel, we would watch all of these. And I remember just thinking, oh, you know, this is just normal. I didn't think anything of it. And then watching even the first moments of Trial by Media, I was like, oh, my God, what is on the show? Oh, it's complete trash. Yeah. Do you think I have I got was I just a child and I didn't understand what I was watching or is I have I gotten more like conservative in my old age? I think you've probably gotten more compassionate. That's <laughs> true. Compassionate, empathetic. But also, yeah, kids don't understand what they're watching. They're just like, oh, everybody's picking up chairs and getting into fistfights. This is awesome. And screaming. Yeah. Yeah. When you're like, no, these are legit people that. Is a lot of it scripted and staged? I absolutely think so, especially Jerry mm-hmm. Springer. But I think there yeah. is some truth to it where people just go on thinking they're going to get a couple thousand bucks, a free trip to Chicago or wherever it's being filmed, find out something along the way, and they don't – it's just like reality shows. You don't really yeah, think long term, this is out there forever. I'm letting in millions of people into my life and, and ex- exposing myself – for what? To be ridiculed yeah. and criticized and raked over the coals and well, and especially the idea of like the surprise one. They showed that on the 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 Netflix show Trial by Media, where it was a one night stand, and they said, "Oh, this is your baby." And Paris just looked at me and said, "That's yeah. someone's life." Yeah, he's like, "Look at that man's face." That one made me very upset. Yeah, yeah, for the baby. Because I'm looking yeah. at the baby. I'm like, this baby now is probably twenty, early twenties. Mm-hmm. And she can look back at that and be like, oh, these were my parents. This was me. And it's just a baby. Like, anytime you bring, like, a minor into it that has no say in it whatsoever, I'm like, you are trash, Jenny Jones. You're complete trash. And even just it it affects – even if you're an adult and you go on there willingly, you don't realize the effect it has on your family. And we had a friend that her family – had gone on Judge Joe Brown and she didn't want anyone to find out and was like, please don't tell anybody. I'm so embarrassed. And of course, it was like, first of all, a million years ago. So where would you even find old episodes of that? You know, they don't really play a ton of those on reruns. And it wasn't even that, you know, one of those judge shows isn't nearly as embarrassing as like, nah. I have a secret sex life with my neighbor or my cousin or whatever. But still, it's just embarrassing. And like you said, it's out there forever. And you have this thing that you're like, oh, I don't want anyone to find out. Like, that's so embarrassing. So Why did you, they you decide have... to go on Judge Joe Brown? I can't remember what the dispute was. I but think what was... is the advantage? I've always wondered that. Do you get paid? They pay for your Correct. legal help and everything? 
I believe what it is, is it usually has to be a dispute less than $5,000 and like everybody gets paid. So that's the thing about the show is that if you're willing to so say me and you get into a dispute and I'm like, you ruined my na- my fence. We're next door neighbors. And I say you ruined my fence and you say you didn't. Well, if we both agree to go on Judge Joe Brown and my fence was worth $2,000, we like both get $2,000 and for going a on it. paid trip to wherever they're And filming. a paid trip. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure we'll get DMs from people and please feel free of like, I was a producer for this or this is how that's fascinating. I mean, I'm interested to know about it, but I think that's the impetus of why people will would do that. Like people's court. My grandparents loved people's court. I remember watching that a lot growing up. And then uh, one of my best friends, Laurie, is obsessed with Judge Judy. (laughs) She loves Judge Judge Judy. Judge Judy family. My sister gave birth while Judge Judy was on television. <laughs> we are a Judge Judy family. I hope as soon as Sydney popped out, the gavel was banged. Just like, uh, I declare this law. baby born. It is law. She's going to be a Supreme Court justice someday. <laughs> like many people in America believe Judge Judy is. Is she a real judge? She's like an arbitrator under New York law. So like her court's not a real judge. But when they're like, the rulings are final, they are because the parties agree to arbitration and they agree that whatever happens, they'll abide. But she isn't she didn't go to law school. She's no, not, I think she, no, she's she a real did? lawyer. OK. okay. Yeah. And to usually to be an arbitrator, you have a legal background and you go through training and all that kind of stuff. So and you abide by the rules of the American Arbitration or Association. And there's a couple different ones. But yep. Very interesting. The rulings are final. They are. The cases are real. The cases people are are real and the cases are real and all of it's real. Sometimes. I always felt like Jerry Springer. I was like, this is all a bunch of bullshit. Oh, <laughs> they, pay, yeah. they told these people backstage, we'll give you an extra grand if you lay a punch on somebody's face. Pretty much. Well, we're talking about talk shows of the 90s because the Jenny Jones show is, well, I don't know if it ever got out of the media, but it's certainly back in the media right now because of the trial by media Netflix show that just came out. And the first episode focuses on what many call the Ginny Jones Show murder. She doesn't want it to be called that, but no. <laughs> that's what it's pretty much known as. She's like, please stop, because when you Google my name, it's the <laughs> oh, number yeah, one thing that's that comes it, up. very much what she's associated with now. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. The Ginny Jones Show was a daytime talk show that began airing in 1991, initially attempting to capitalize on the talk show format made famous by Oprah Winfrey. Jenny Jones was chosen to host due to her prior career as a rock band drummer and a stand-up comedian in Canada. All things that make you a great talk show host, apparently. She was also an actress and a singer. Yeah, it's like, mm, there's not really a proper resume for someone to be a talk show host. Like, I don't, if you ask me, I mean, Ricky Lake was an actress, but if you ask me, like, what did Jerry Springer do before that? I don't know. I don't know. I think he did do something, but... I mean, they're all Murray. in the entertainment industry, but mm-hmm. I don't know. What's his name? Geraldo. Didn't he work for Inside Edition or something? That made him. I don't remember which came first, but. Yeah. Now he's on whatever Fox News yeah. and stuff. Also trash. <sighs> However, Jenny Jones was no Oprah. The ratings in the first two seasons fell and the producers, as well as Jones, were hungry to improve the show's performance. Rather than Oprah style sit down interviews. The show changed its format in an effort to draw an audience with the outrageous things they would cover. The format became fixated on the obscene and absurd, covering paternity tests, 
feuding families and rowdy, out-of-control teens that would be sent away to boot camp to learn the error of their ways. Musical guests were also featured, including up-and-coming artists at the time, Usher, Ludacris, and Nelly, whose performances on the show were their first appearances on national television. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's so that's wild that, that she <laughs> the, was breaking the, careers. Uh, like Usher's first national television appearance was on the Jenny Jones show. I mean, back I guess you're trying to break into the industry yeah, and you're like, sure. I'll go. I'm I'll, I'll do anything. Show. But yeah. Yeah, the boot but camp those, episodes uh, were always fun to watch because you felt some satisfaction of seeing these real asshole teens get yes. screamed at and break down. <laughs> They're like, I don't care. I'll do what I want. And they would bring that drill sergeant guy out. And you're mm-hmm. like, get him. Yeah, get him. <laughs> the show titles were usually sensational and oftentimes rhymed. You may shake it for money, but leave those sexy clothes at the club, honey. I don't want my daughter to date interracially. My teen's too hot. I hate my own race. And teen by day, vampire by night. Team by Day, Vampire by Night sounds pretty sweet. I'm going to have to look up that that episode. It's like a TV show on the WWE Absolutely. or CW. Yes. <laughs> I would watch that. That was ahead of its time. That was before Twilight <laughs> exactly. or any of these. Te- those teens now are like, see, Mom, I told you we could have been rich. Damn it. <laughs> they're still teens because they're vampires. That's Oh, that's a good point. We'll never they age. Aged. They'll never age. Many critics considered the Jenny Jones show to be a ripoff of the Ricky Lake show and just as outrageous as the Jerry Springer show, other so-called daytime trash TV in the 1990s. Seemingly void of morals and ethics, they all competed in a race to the bottom to try and outdo one another's most outrageous episodes. Yeah, if there was an episode that's like, I have secretly am cheating on my husband with my neighbor, the, the other show would be like, well, I'm cheating on my husband with my cousin. Yeah, <laughs> like, and then they're like, I am my husband and I'm cheating on myself with myself. It's just like <laughs> you couldn't get crazy enough. And there were so many of them. Yeah. Now there's really, are there any? That are like that? That are super just like sensational and titillating and just trashy. No, I mean, like, the TMZ show, but that's, I mean, as we know, that's journalistic integrity, <laughs> real news. At its, at its finest. But there's no, like, where they bring on, I mean, because Jerry Springer isn't around anymore. No, and I mean, you still have, like, Judge Judy and, like, those, those courtroom yeah. shows. But I don't think there's one like this where it's, like, because it's, I think the trend is now toward, like, the panel show. Yeah, like, the, view. the View. started, and now there's, like, three or four kind of View-esque shows. There is the Wendy Williams show, which a lot of people would say she's trash. She's had some and she, run-ins. I'm, I'm not going to say that she's not. So No, no, no. I'm not a fan. She's said some horrific things and never really apologizes yeah. or seems to care about what she says. No. She just doesn't want to get in trouble for it. But it's, I don't, yeah, but I don't watch her show, so I don't know if she brings on guests and has, like the paternity test reveal and all of no, that I stuff. I don't think so. I think hers is more like lifestyle kind of yeah. stuff. So hopefully we as a country have somewhat moved away I from that. I hope so. Because the 90s were wild. Everybody had one back then. Oh, yeah. And it was always people running off stage, running on stage, throwing stuff, fighting. Yep. Crazy. On March 6, 1995, Jenny Jones taped an episode titled Same Sex Secret Crushes a type of episode that many refer to as ambush television. She began the taping with the following setup, spoken directly into the camera. Now, which of these ways would you choose to reveal your secret crush on someone? A, would you write that person a letter? 
B, would you tell that person in private in case he rejects you? Or C, would you tell that person you're gay and you hope he is too on national television in front of millions of people? The audience behind Jenny roared and cheered. So that's how these things got set up. It was very sensationalist, just uh, priming the audience for we're about to see something taboo. They would tell them beforehand, like, hoop, holler, the applause signs constantly going off. It's just a lot of, like, egging on of the wrong types of things. Yeah, and I think... That the human nature that you want to see a fight, it's, you know, goes back to Roman, Roman Colosseums. You know, they wanted to see the lion destroy the man. Sure. They're like, yeah, they're going to freak out. Like, we want to see the ambush. Or people watching hockey like, that just, you know, when there's a fight, fight in hockey, yeah, it, the arena goes apeshit when that stuff happens. Yeah. Now, th- now that you said, is there anything? I think Dr. Phil is devolving into this. Is he still on the air, though? I thought he wasn't on the air anymore. I thought it was just reruns. Nothing. No, he's still in the air. Oh, I mean, Jesus. as of January, God. I visited his studio. That was just a dream I had where I <laughs> hoped he was off the air, I suppose. Yeah, he would probably be the closest to something like this. Where it's a family drama yeah. and out-of-control teens and things like that. And yeah. he arguably might be more harmful because he has the guise of, I'm helping you. I'm a doctor. We're doing this to help you. But it's all of this is just for financial gain and ratings. None yeah, of them give what, a shit about these people's actual lives or emotional or mental state. It's just ratings, ratings, ratings. Yeah, it's what is the most uh, sensational thing that's going to suck more eyeballs. Yep. One guest scheduled to appear that day was 24-year-old Jonathan Schmitz, who expected an interested woman to confess her crush to him on the show. According to his defense attorney, James Burdick, Jonathan expected that it would be his ex-fiance confessing her love and trying to reignite their romance. The two had broken up months earlier, and Jonathan told his co-workers, who knew he was flying from Michigan to Chicago to attend the taping, that if it was his ex-fiance, he planned to get back with her and marry her. If not his ex, then Jonathan expected it to be a female co-worker with whom he felt a spark. So when you're told someone has a crush on you, your mind starts going, who all do I know sure. that... Possibly. If if you called me and said, hi, I'm from a television show, a person that you know has a crush on you. Do you want to learn about it on the show? I'd be like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> no. I would, first of all, think, um, who do I know that I, I mean, I would be shocked that someone I know has a crush on me, first of all, at all. Not, yeah. I'm not like trying to say, talk shit about myself. It would just be like crazy if all of a sudden I found out like one of my friends had a crush on me. Second... I would also think it's got to be something completely sensational or they're not going to put it on TV. It's not yeah. like your friend that you've known for several years and y'all are pretty good friends, like has a crush on you. Be like, oh, well, that's interesting, but it's not like completely crazy. It would be like uh, your third cousin from an uncle you never knew you had has a crush yeah. on you. It'd be something wild like that. Yeah. Or so. yeah, something that it's not going to be a happy thing, I don't think. <laughs> I think it's going to be a, a sensationalist thing, but they're also saying, you'll get a trip to Chicago, we'll pay for your flight out here, we pay for your hotel. I'm sure they get some kind of stipend or money even for coming on the show. So, and if he thinks it's his fiance that he's trying to get back with, you know, if that's, if he wants to get back with her, maybe he's like, oh, this is perfect. I've been wanting to get back with her. 
Oh, that's kind of sad, though. I would also call her up, though, and be like, hey, did you uh, contact the Jenny Jones show? What's happening? Are we about to do this? Like, I would cover all my bases before I just blindly went into a situation like this. Yeah. Just before Jonathan was brought on stage, Jenny Jones interviewed Donna Riley. The connection between Jonathan and his actual secret admirer, 32-year-old Scott Amador. Donna was neighbors with Jonathan and friends with Scott. Scott's brother also lived in the same apartment complex, which is how Scott initially met Donna. Jenny Jones asks Donna if she thinks Jonathan is gay. While Donna says no, she does say that Jonathan had told her that several family members had questioned him about his sexuality before. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, not cool for Donna to tell everybody in America. No, no. There's Personal a lot things of this that your that, friend. Yeah. There's a lot of this that's not cool. The first yeah. is that we should be acting like it's this taboo, mm-hmm. crazy thing that's even worthy of a talk show because a man has another crush on a man. Yeah. It's completely rooted in homophobia and yes. almost like fetishizing the homo like the gay experience of like, ooh, it's a fetish. It's a weird thing. Yeah. It's like he's just a normal dude who likes somebody and you know what? That's just they've taken it and tried to make she you can tell like in her questioning, she's like, Ew, you're into some weird stuff. It's like, no, this is pretty run of the mill. No, like it's pretty pretty a, average, adults. pretty normal. Yeah. But yeah. And then this Donna person to be like, Oh yeah, he struggled with his family and these things were like maybe he told you that in confidence as a friend as we'll see there's some stuff going on there with the family a lot of stuff scott had initially taken an interest in jonathan while visiting donna one day he had seen jonathan working on a brake line underneath her car and was instantly attracted according to friends scott was a huge fan of the jenny jones show and watched it religiously the show would regularly put out a call to action for viewers asking them to call in if their stories fit the bill for an upcoming episode After seeing a clip in which Jenny Jones addressed viewers at home, saying, Do you have a secret crush you'd like to reveal to a same-sex friend? Call 312-836-9455. Scott decided to take a leap of faith and submit to be on the show. Soon, producers called Jonathan, telling him that the topic of the show would be secret crushes, and that the person that had a crush on him could either be a woman or a man. That was a lot of their argument of like, we didn't lie to anybody. We told him it could be either. And I completely agree. And the prosecution or the defense would say, so you didn't tell them you lied to them. You said it could be either a man or a woman, even though you knew it was a man. They're like, the title of the show was Secret Crushes. It was a secret. Yes, we didn't tell any of the guests who was coming on, you idiot. The line Mm -hmm. of questioning by some of them, I'm just like, I get that they're trying to what they're trying to do. But it's also like. Sometimes things are just as they are. It's a shitty situation, yeah. but so you, sometimes it just doesn't make sense to point the finger at somebody. Well, and truly, you if you're saying, what am I coming to? And if they said, well, we're going to bring you on the show and have you talk about your experience as a, a man living in Michigan. And you're like, OK. And you show up right. and they're like, just kidding. It's a secret crush. <laughs> but you're you're told like. You're going to come and someone, a man or a woman is going to tell you they have a crush. Like you're told the premise and you're, you know, the premise is a secret. So I think that's fair, at least. Absolutely. Well, now Scott found himself answering questions from Jenny Jones as she pushed him to describe his sexual feelings for Jonathan Schmitz, asking which of Jonathan's physical traits he found sexiest. She prodded him about his sexual fantasies and asked how Scott would describe Jonathan's body while a rowdy audience hooped and hollered. 
Yeah, she was very lewd in her questioning. She's like, oh, what else? Oh, there's no real ethics to these types of talk show hosts. It's just, again, like, what can I say that's going to get the biggest reaction from the crowd and then the biggest ratings once this airs? And I know she's at least throughout, you know, whatever the things that have transpired, you know, that transpired until the show was off the air. But I ever, I've wondered if ever she or Jenny or Ricky Lake or Jerry Springer ever like were had an existential crisis where they like find themselves standing in the audience going, "So when did you first have a sexual attraction to your cousin?" and going, "What is my life what right did, now?" What, like, what sentence just came out of my what? mouth? What is my life? Perhaps. And then they go cash that paycheck. They're like, you know what? I'm okay with it. It's just a job. I think that's how a lot of people rationalize things like that is this is my job. This is what I do. Um, And I'm I'm pretty much an entertainer. This is a character I portray. This might not be how I am in my real life, but I get up here and it's an act. That's true. Which makes sense. I mean, tons of people you see, even in like... um, Mythbusters came to mind or some any of those shows like half the time like those people don't even get along they don't like each yeah. other you'll see like sportscasters that um the uh razor that did the Dallas Stars announcement the guy that did oh. the announcing with him they announced together for like 20 years couldn't stand each other but you would never oh, wow. know that to watch them but then when the cameras were off they hated each other, but they would. They've said in interviews like it's a job. You know, the cameras come on. We're just doing. We we consider it like it's part of the job just to act like we like each other. So just because you see these, like that doesn't have to be Jenny Jones as a person. But the show's called her name. She's trying to relate to people as if she's like a people's person and, and one of them and all this. So that's where you start blurring the lines between who you really are as a person and who your TV persona is. And then people just don't like you because you look like a real bitch on, on screen. Well, no joke. And also she started it to try to be like Oprah and you know, that didn't go well. And so you're like, well, what's, what can I do that's going to rake in cash? And I don't care about what I'm the show I'm making. Although she maintained the whole time, like it's a fun show. It's super fun, but fun for who is the question. Yeah. Yeah. And you've essentially sold out. And also, they don't see those people after that episode ends. They Mm-mm. probably never talk to them ad- again. They don't know the follow-up of how did this really affect their lives? What happened when they went home and this guy just found out he had a six-month-old from a one-night mm-hmm. stand? Like, they don't follow up on that. To her, it is just like, it's fun and lighthearted. No, to somebody else, their entire life just changed. And was that thing Yeah, you that- just ruined their lives. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, who had been backstage wearing soundproof headphones, was then called onto the stage. Instead of his ex-fiance or an interested female co-worker, he has met with his friend Donna and his acquaintance, Scott Amador. He has a smile on his face as he embraces Donna and gives her a kiss on the cheek. Scott then shakes Jonathan's hand before pulling him in for a very awkward embrace. Jonathan sits down next to Scott and Jenny Jones begins interviewing him. She asks Jonathan... Did you think Donna had the crush on you? Jonathan says laughing. Did I? No, we're, we're good friends. Jenny interrupts Jonathan mid-sentence. Well, guess what? It's Scott that has the crush on you. Jonathan looks visibly uncomfortable, grins, and looks at Scott and Donna, saying, You lied to me. <laughs> you lied to me. Jenny then reveals Scott's previous interview footage regarding his fantasies about Jonathan, informing him, 
He's been fantasizing about you since he first saw you. Can you tell us what your status is? Are you involved with anybody? Jonathan tells Jenny in the roaring audience. No, but I am definitely heterosexual. A response to which the majority of the audience stood up and cheered. Yikes. Which is also very problematic. It's Yikes. The whole thing is cringy beyond cringy. You just sit there and especially the the episode never aired because of mm-hmm. what happens. But you can see clips of it when you're watching it and you're just seeing this knowing in three days these guys' lives are going to be completely different than they are right now because of what's happened. It's just it's hard to reconcile. And in they're both, and Don, Donna Riley's kind of, I feel like it's low, lower stakes for her, but for both Scott and Jonathan, you can tell they're both kind of nervous, not nervous on the cameras, but feel like, okay, I have to do what she wants me to do. And so when Jenny's like, tell us about your sex fantasies, you can see Scott will like answer and kind of look to the side and kind of swallow and is like, well, uh, you know, and then we'll tell, you know, and she's pulling it out of mm-hmm. him and trying to prod him for some stuff. And like you said, you'd look at them and go, they're doing what they think they should be doing and then not knowing the trajectory that they're both right. on. Yeah. It's very eerie to watch. It is. It is. Well, because I pulled it up and Paris goes, oh, what are you watching? And I said, in three days, that man. Well, and he was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Jonathan appears to become more noticeably uncomfortable on stage, covering his face with his hands while Jones presses for more details. Jones asks Scott to again describe sexual fantasies he had about Jonathan. Scott obliges, saying they involved his hammock, whipped cream, strawberries, and champagne. Again, that's just a normal fantasy, but they make it sound like it is just the seediest, dirtiest thing one could say because it's two men. Yeah, and she she, she does make it like, oh, you want to take him in your hammock? Yeah. Ooh. And it's just like, come on, man. this It's... Like you said, it's normal stuff, and she later on just seems like, oh, no, it's it was no big deal. I wasn't trying to make a thing out of it. It's like you were trying to make a thing out of it because on purpose you wanted to, you wanted it to be shocking. If there's no thing, your show sucks. Of course you want a thing yeah. to be made out of it. You're not, yeah. Your producers aren't booking this content because they think there's not going to be a thing made of it. That's boring TV for people that are yeah. turning in, tuning in. Jonathan explains to the audience that he knew Scott and had interacted with him before. Donna had relayed Scott's previous interest to Jonathan, saying that Scott had called Jonathan a good-looking guy. Jonathan admitted that he was flattered. I mean, during this whole thing, he does look uncomfortable. He has a lot of people, when they get nervous and uncomfortable, will just smile and laugh. It's kind of a defense mechanism. He He just has this plastered smile on his face, almost like a mask throughout the whole thing. But he Mm -hmm. never gets aggressive. He doesn't, I mean, raise his voice, get angry at at all about anything. He just looks very uncomfortable about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It just seems kind of nervous. He's looking around side to side. And like you said, like, (laughs) between answers that aren't necessarily funny. Yeah. Kind of laughing. Jonathan's defense attorney, James Burdick, later described Jones' behavior in the footage as draining the last drop out of the men on stage as she continued with her questions in an attempt to bring about juicy responses. In a later interview, Scott's mother, Patricia Graves, claimed that Jenny Jones pushed Scott into doing things he didn't want to do. Graves told the HBO documentarians of Talk to Death that Jones supposedly pressured Donna and Scott before the taping to 
make it look good for the audience or Jenny would be very mad. So again, they're just thinking, well, the more I do what I'm supposed to do, the better this will go for all of us. And then we're just going to cash our checks and go. Yeah. And if she's asking questions, you better answer. I mean, if she's like, tell us about your sexual fantasies and you go, wow, I don't feel comfortable talking about that. I mean, yeah, you're probably going to get screwed. Guess what? You came on this show to talk about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While the revealed secret crush was not at all what Jonathan was expecting, he appeared to be relatively good spirits, despite being obviously uncomfortable. He, Scott and Donna even made the decision to fly back to Michigan together from the taping in Chicago where they then went out to a bar for drinks. Called Brewskies. Brewskies. And it's advertised as the best nachos in town. Dude, I've been craving nachos like a bitch lately. Bad. I some nachos? I, I specifically want El Phoenix nachos, but oh, yeah. their beans aren't vegetarian, which oh, man. is one of the saddest things that's happened in my life. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really upsetting. Not a lot of stuff is vegetarian at El Phoenix. So, uh, but I did have El Peloto the other day, which are the best vegan nachos in America. Oh, they're vegan nachos? Their whole restaurant is vegan. Oh, that's the yeah. place we talked about. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And when Tommy went to go pick it up because they're, the inside is closed and they're just mm-hmm. allowing pickup, a robot driving a big wheels car is parked out front. Someone comes out, puts the food in the back of the big wheels, and then they control (laughs) this whole thing from inside with a remote control and send it over to your car. So he never interacted with a human at all. Okay, now I'm going to go there. (laughs) You should just for the robot experience. And because it's also delicious. If you just do decide to go, let me know. I'll tell you what to get. I mean, anything is good. So it's, I can't tell. If you were in Dallas, go to El Pelote. It is not just the best vegan Mexican food, but honestly, some of the best Mexican food I've ever had. It's out of this world good how how good it is. You will not and be it's disappointed. Given to you by a robot. And so right now you, you can get it delivered to you by a robot driving like a big wheels car. That in and of itself is reason enough to go. It's worth the trip. Yep. In later testimony, Jonathan's father recalled how his son had called him from the bar to let him know things hadn't gone well at the taping. Jonathan told his father the crush had been a guy, to which his father angrily replied by yelling homophobic slurs and throwing a chair. He told Jonathan that he should be humiliated, that people might now think he was gay, and recalled to the prosecutor that both he and his son were embarrassed by the situation. His testimony is some of the cringiest shit. When he says, yeah, I was embarrassed that people would think my son was gay. Wouldn't you be embarrassed if people thought you were gay? And the prosecutor just looks at me and he's like, so you're saying that you told your son he should be humiliated by that, which I think mm-hmm. is a huge part of this whole thing. I have oh, I have my own theory as to maybe what was going on in the background and stuff. And the fact that his father... It's like, you should do something about this, like egging him on to do something. You, mm-hmm. you should be humiliated. People might now think you're an F word. Like, he's just, yeah. that's, he is a homophobe and was not a, a, afraid to show it. And how can that not affect a 24-year-old guy that... That your your dad is pushing yeah, that yeah. on you. Well, and he also, you know, in the testimony, they go, well, what did you say? And he goes, oh, I think I said, they're like, did you say gay bastards? And he's like... 
yeah, I think I think I said that. And they're like, did you also say something else? And he's like, I think so. And then, they go, did I mean, you say something that starts with an F and ends with an S? He's like, yeah, probably. God. And the prosecutor's like, and then did you pick up a chair and throw it across the room? He's like, yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, doesn't try to deny it at all. No, but it's, you know, you you're have the court TV cameras on you. He did. He was. It's almost like he's like, well, I just reacted as anyone else would. And it's like, that's not how anyone else No, I mean, and no. he straight up says to the prosecutor, wouldn't you be upset if somebody thought you were gay? I mean, again, I, I like to think that we've come at least some way since the mid 90s to where we are now to where this wouldn't even be that big of a deal. But mm-hmm. back then he's thinking. It's a crime if somebody were to even, like, insinuate that you might be a homosexual and you have yep. every reason to be offended and get embarrassed and humiliated and kill and someone. And retaliate. Yeah. When it's like, who gives a shit? Get over yourself. No. It, it, be no. flattered that somebody even likes you in the first place. Yeah. He said a lot of, ve- Scott said a lot of very nice things about he him. Did, yeah. According to testimony at the civil trial, Jenny Jones producer Ron Mucciani told assistant producer Karen Campbell that he had heard from Scott two days after the taping. Apparently on Tuesday, May 7th, the day after the show, Scott and Jonathan went out together, shared a slow dance, and even kissed. Scott called it a love connection and told Mucciani that the two had hooked up. Several other friends testified that Scott had also told them that he and Jonathan had slept together. Donna, however, who had been with the men the entire night at the bar and the after party at her apartment, swore under oath that nothing like that happened. What do you so think? Beca- do you think that something happened? Well, this became kind of the crux of the defense in the civil trial because the issue would be then, well, if they're hooking up, then obviously that was the reason for the murder and it wasn't anything else. But it didn't come out until the civil trial. So I wonder if it was cooked up or if I watched the testimony of this lady, this uh, Campbell woman, that's uh, the Karen Campbell, who is a former producer on the show. And she seems compelling on the stand that it actually mm-hmm. happened. She's like, he called Ron. It was, and Mucciani too was like, he, I just took his call. We frequently we get updates from guests. They just call and check in with us because you know I had been talking to him. So their testimony seems compelling, but th- my the fishy smell is like, hmm. It's kind of like, why didn't it come up at trial? At this, that's what I'm wondering trial? too. Why, if it happened, why wouldn't Mucciani have during the criminal trial called one of their attorneys and said, hey, just so you know, I've got this information. Like, yeah. why would I? I don't understand that either. Well, or unless the Warner Brothers production company that owns them said, full stop, you are not to contact the police. Don't talk to anybody. Basically, like an internal office memo that says, hey, don't mention anything about the case. We can't talk about it. And don't stick your nose in. If the cops call you, let us know and we'll have an attorney with you. So they may have been told not to. Could have also been that their company's getting sued. And so now they're saying whatever they can think of to yes. not have to uh, pay out in a huge settlement. Yeah. And the stuff like that, I'm always like, could you, just, why, why couldn't you just check the phone records and be like, there was an incoming call from Scott that day. I mean, that's not going to exactly tell you what was it, absent it being recorded or having handwritten notes from the time. That's like call from Scott, this or an email. Right. This is why a lot of times if you're being sued, document, document, document. 
While conflicting stories came out regarding exactly what transpired after the taping, Jonathan's defense attorney, James Burdick, claimed his client was actually horrified by the experience on the show. According to Burdick, after the taping concluded, Jonathan went out drinking and smoking marijuana, beginning a binge that would last for the next two days. Three days after the taping, on March 9, 1995, Jonathan found an anonymous note on his front door after coming home from another drinking bender. The note read, If you really want to get off, I'm the only one who has the right tool. Drunk and enraged, Jonathan drove to his bank, where he took cash out of his savings account. He used that cash to purchase a Mossberg 12-gauge pump-action shotgun and buckshot shells. And they said it was attached to a construction light. That and, and Donna says in her testimony in one of the trials, when they flew back together and went to that bar, they were walking through the parking lot and saw one of those flashing construction lights. And Jonathan had a blinker out on his car and Scott made a joke like, oh, this could be your new blinker. And they all laughed about it or whatever. I guess he pocketed it. And then that's what he attached to the note on his door. So because of the content of the note and the fact that Jonathan knew he had been there when when they found this and stuff. He just assumed it was Scott. Yeah, that's true. Because the he in the handwriting. I mean, the note's not signed, right? But from that, because when I initially was doing research, I didn't, I hadn't seen her testimony, and I thought, well, how did? Why would you just assume it unless they had hooked up and he found the note in the morning? But if mm. once you put the construction light with it, it makes way more sense. Yeah. Jonathan then drove to Scott's mobile home in Lake Orion and confronted his now not-so-secret admirer. Jonathan demanded to know whether Scott wrote the note. Scott smiled and confirmed that he had. Jonathan then walked back to his car, telling Scott he just needed to turn off the engine. He proceeded to sit in his car, deciding what to do next. He then got out of the car with the shotgun and walked back up to the mobile home. This is what I would point to as premeditated murder. Absolutely. I think it's premeditated when he went and bought that shotgun. Yeah, for sure. Especially his statement later that said, that's when I decided to kill him. You're right. like, well, then that is a pinpoint in time. In an interview, Frank Amador Jr., Scott Amador's older brother, recounted what had happened that day based on later testimony. Scott looked out the door and saw Jonathan approaching with the gun. He then yelled to his roommate, Gary, he's got a gun, help, as he tried closing the door to keep Jonathan out. Jonathan busted the door open with the barrel of the shotgun. Scott retreated, fearing for his life, and put a wicker chair between himself and his assailant. Scott backed himself into the kitchen, but Jonathan pursued him. Jonathan then shot Scott in the chest at close range with the shotgun. Scott grabbed his chest and stood for a moment. He then started to fall. When Scott hit his knees, Jonathan shot him again. Scott knew that he was going to die, his brother told HBO documentary filmmakers. That was a terrible thing to know that somebody's coming after you with the gun and there's no way out. After leaving the scene, Jonathan drove to a nearby gas station and found a payphone. He called 911 and reported his crime. He told the operator, I just walked in the room and killed him. When police arrived, they found Jonathan sitting at the gas station, weeping. He told the officers that they would find the murder weapon in the car, which officers recovered. Jonathan continued weeping as they began the drive back to the police station, but eventually he became very quiet and simply sat motionless in the back of the squad car. 
So he immediately feels regret. He knows what he's done is completely wrong. He turns himself in. He doesn't try and run or, or hide it or anything. He calls the police and says, I have committed a murder. Yes. And, and they go, why did you do that? And he goes, he did me wrong. He took me on the Jenny Jones show. I mean, it's just right there. Yeah. The the 911 operator says, okay, calm down. She's very calm. Why did you do that? He played a bad thing on me. He took me on the Jenny Jones show. It's recorded. They play the the 911 call in court for everyone to hear. I mean, he sounds extremely distraught and hysterical at what he's done. Mm-hmm. So I I don't I just I don't buy the um the defense that they're going to come up with. Mm-mm. No, and especially given the long set like the you know, a lot of times you can even convict someone of first degree murder the premeditation of like if I have a gun in my purse and I lean over and then sit up and then shoot someone, you're like, okay, well, that's like premeditation, even if it's like 10 seconds. This is like, he woke up, he found the note, and then thusly starts, I'm going to go get the cash out. Then I'm going to make the stop to buy the gun and the buckshots. Then I'm going to drive all the way to his house. And then he talks to him and then goes back to his car. It's just one of those where there's been convictions on much less, yeah. you know, to, to prove the intent. He was for almost 24 hours thinking, I'm going to do this. Yeah, I think after he talked to his dad on the phone. Yeah. Jonathan Schmitz was charged and tried for first-degree murder. The jury also had the opportunity to convict him of a lesser charge of second-degree murder, as well as related crimes like possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. The defense's theory as to why Jonathan committed this heinous act was primarily two arguments. First, that of embarrassment due to his appearance on The Jenny Jones Show. And second, his diminished capacity— The defense argued that Jonathan was completely humiliated by appearing on the show and being told that another man had a sexual attraction to him. In support of this, Jenny Jones was called to testify at the trial. In her testimony, she told the jury she thought that the show that day was lighthearted and fun. The defense pressed her on her culpability in orchestrating the show. Jones denied involvement in choosing topics and testified that she sometimes is unaware of a show's topic until the night before the show. I find that hard to believe. Yeah. I don't know if she had firsthand account in choosing everything, but I think before the night of the show, they would have production meetings weekly that are like, coming up this week, this is what we're doing. Here are your notes. Like, they would have to prepare her much earlier than 24 hours before they're going to be taping. Or less than 24 hours. I don't think she's about to go to bed like, oh, look at my calendar for the next day. It's like bullshit. You at least know, okay, this week we're going to focus on out of control teens. And next week it's going to, you know, there's no way. Yeah, absolutely. I I think she was just, she's trying to separate herself as much as possible. When asked whether she was especially good at evoking motions from those who appeared on her show, Jones replied, I don't know if I do it that well. She was also asked whether she had any special talents that qualified her to be a talk show host. She testified, It may be questionable. In the end, Jones did admit that the premise of the show was that it was a surprise. I was going to say, she kind of had the jury in her hands, too. They, I mean, first of all, it's a celebrity. They're excited to see a famous person in their relatively small town. And she had been very well prepared and was turning her head to speak to the jury like, hi, guys. She was very charismatic and clearly putting, putting it on like, I didn't have anything to do with this. She had been, um, some might say, coached by her attorneys mm-hmm. on what to say, for sure. For the diminished capacity argument, 
the defense focused on Jonathan's mental health issues and how that meant he was unable to act with the premeditation required under Michigan law. His defense attorney argued that Jonathan did not have sufficient mental capacity to form any intent, general or specific, because he was suffering from recurrent bipolar or unipolar depressive disorder and from the psychological consequences of untreated Graves' disease, an autoimmune disease that affects the thyroid and can cause depression and nervousness. That, yeah, that was the the whole reason I think that it got, you know, it had the outcome that it did is that they hammered, hammered, hammered on. He he had so many issues. He's so depressed. He had so, but I don't think there was, there was expert testimony to the conditions that he had, but I don't think there was sufficient testimony for, like from previous behavioral occurrences. Correct. Yes. He didn't have a rap sheet. He he had never been arrested for any type of violent behavior or anything like that or hospitalized for anything. Stories of physical and emotional abuse that Jonathan suffered at the hands of his father also surfaced in court, those of which his father did not deny. Jonathan's father also testified that at least on one occasion, his son had tried to kill himself by consuming an entire bottle of his father's prescription heart medication. Additionally, prior to committing the crime, Jonathan had been drinking heavily and using marijuana. So it's it's safe to say that he definitely has a lot of mental health stuff going on, untreated, Correct. most of it. He's not on medication for his bipolar or his graves or anything like that. He has a history of suicidal tendencies and thoughts and even acting out on it. Does that mean that you're allowed to kill someone? No, I don't think that it um, excuses his behavior. I mean legally speaking it doesn't mean it's it's not we're not seeing like a case that we saw like with the white rock machete case where he's right totally thinks oh this is i'm doing i'm god and i'm this is a demon i'm slaying i mean this is yeah. a person who knew exactly the whole entire time what he did and shot with the intent to kill absolutely detective craig stout who was the officer that arrived at the gas station to arrest jonathan testified at the trial about the arrest at the time, Jonathan told Detective Stout that while the television appearance was humiliating, he had convinced himself to remain a gentleman. However, when Jonathan discovered the anonymous note, he told Detective Stout, At that point, I decided I was going to kill him. Well, there you have it. Yeah, I don't really know what they were, the, the <laughs> jury else was looking I for. I don't know how much more premeditated one can get than than that. To To the defense attorney's credit... You know, if you came to me and said, hey, will you defend this guy? He not only verbally told a cop that he planned to kill someone, he killed a person with a shotgun at close range that he had bought that day, drove over to the suspects or to the defendant or the victim's house. And also the victim's roommate was home and saw the whole thing go down. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be like, no, tell him to plead yeah. out. That's a horrible. This guy was not he didn't want to take the L. He just wanted to he wanted to fight it. No. And his his. uh defense attorney is a real piece of work in the trial by media episode <laughs> when he's being interviewed it. i have never seen so much victim blaming as when he's describing how scott was murdered and he's like mm -hmm. he came in there he wasn't even he was holding the shotgun at his side which is a passive stance and then uh john or scott throws a chair at jonathan 
he's just asking to get murdered. It's like, what? Like, so <laughs> throwing a chair at someone because you see that they have a gun pointed at you is somehow now it's your fault that they pulled the trigger? It's wild that a, that an actual attorney of law would be on a Netflix show saying this to millions of people. Yeah, and it, you wonder, how do you, first of all, how do you sleep at night? But second of all, that seems a little questionable ethically. I mean, if that is the version that his client told him, I still don't think that a rational person would say someone is approaching you with a shotgun, whether you throw a chair or just put a chair betwixt the two of you, that that was any sort of an, an incendiary action. Like the chair is not equivalent no. to deserving to be shot at close range with buckshot. If someone's coming at me with a shotgun, I'm going to pick up whatever I have it, that possibly could help me survive the situation. Yeah. And I don't know that it was a passive stance whenever he used the barrel of the shotgun to bust in the door. Exactly. And Scott screams, hey, Gary, help me. This guy's got a gun. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Nah. Based on this admission to Detective Stout, the prosecutor argued that Jonathan was in his right mind and in full control of his actions at the time of the slaying. The prosecutor showed close up photos of Scott's wounds to the jury and argued that due to how close the shots were fired, they were intended to kill. So close, in fact, that evidence showed the paper wadding from one shotgun shell ended up in Scott's heart. His left lung also contained a fragment of the casing of the other shell. It was very close range. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like, I'm pissed off and I shot, and oh no, you accidentally got hit. It was purposeful. Yep. Intentional, some would say. <laughs> Based on the evidence and testimony presented... Jonathan was convicted of second-degree murder and possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. When the New York Times asked jurors after the trial whether they believed the murder would have happened had the men not appeared on the television show, at least two jurors replied at the same time, Probably not. Another juror pointed to Jonathan's behavior outside of his victim's home, as well as his alcohol and marijuana consumption, as a reason for the conviction. Because Jonathan sat in his car for so long, contemplating the murder, and had been drinking and smoking weed, one juror named Miss O'Brien told the New York Times, All of that led us to question whether he was in his right mind. So here's my question. Yes? Is the fact that you're drunk and high an actual defense? Because no, that's you something you can control correct, doing yeah, or not doing. Exactly. And that's usually where it comes in is that you intentionally or you volitionally took it's like it'd be one that you took the drugs and the alcohol you right. know if you're like i got really drunk and i killed someone versus i took a drink of what i thought was diet coke and someone had put you know whatever methamphetamine in it. in it and i didn't yeah. know what i was doing exactly so you've made the choice to be, put yourself in that state of mind so then you're responsible for what happens in that state of mind it, it the question then becomes like were you like so like for intoxication manslaughter, for instance, like if you're so wasted, you didn't know what you were doing. That used to be an excuse because you're like, I was so drunk. But again, you would say, OK, well, you intentionally got that wasted. But I think in in his case, he that's stupid because he wasn't still drunk. You know what I mean? Even if even if you wanted to say, oh, he had been drinking and he had been smoking. I don't think there was evidence that he was still drunk. I mean, he was able to go to the bank. He was able to effectuate a transaction to purchase a firearm. He was right. operating a vehicle safely. I don't think he maybe was hungover and didn't feel real great, but that he doesn't, also that's sat not the same in his thing. car contemplating it, which, you know, <laughs> usually a lot of people 
in these situations, you you always hear like, like even Ted Bundy, he had to get drunk to be able to like go through with it. Mm-hmm. Like they have to put themselves out of their own mind so they can actually go through with it. He was sitting in his car going, do I do this? Do I not? I know this is, you know what I mean? Like weighing all of he, his options. That's not something a drunk person does. Not at all. And I don't think we have testimony that this happened, but I wonder if his dad's voice wasn't in his head. Oh, absolutely. This is, that's what my theory is. The jurors were interviewed at a news conference after the trial and laid out their reasoning for convicting Jonathan for second-degree murder rather than the more serious charge of first-degree murder. They said that they had previously strongly considered the first-degree charge. At one point, they even took a vote, and it came in 10 in favor of first-degree murder and two opposed. But during the deliberations, the jurors were dismissed for three days in honor of the Veterans Day holiday. When the jury returned, they decided to convict Jonathan of second-degree murder. Because, according to the New York Times, There are too many questions about Schmidt's state of mind at the time of the killing to convict him of first-degree murder. So here so. again is my question. He put himself into that state of mind. If if their whole thing, like Ms. O'Brien said, well, he'd been drinking and smoking marijuana, so we didn't really know his state of mind. That's too bad, so sad. That's his own fault that he did that to himself. So how can they use that as justification for why they wouldn't charge him with first degree murder i don't i think that the i was drunk was not effective i think that the argument of graves disease mixed with bipolar untreated depression that's why i think that's what they hammered on on why he couldn't uh, formulate the requisite intent because in michigan first degree murder is premeditated you know it's you take a life and you intended to take that life and thought about it in advance versus like heat of passion or Second degree murder in Michigan is defined as anything that's not first degree murder. And so I think that's why they came to this conclusion was that they were swayed and persuaded by the evidence that he had uh, untreated mental health problems that then I don't think it's a persuasive argument. I think the jury got this fully wrong. I think full stop. This is first degree premeditated murder and he was fully in control of his actions. But they seem to have been convinced and swayed by the uh, testimony and evidence regarding his his mental health problems. Well, I don't of, think he was so mentally ill that he couldn't have uh, formulated intent. No, he told the cop that <laughs> he was going to kill him. Yeah. He went and bought a gun. He out. Between that and actual killing him, hours pass yes. to where he's, you know, I mean, that's all that's going through his head. He yes. sits in his car. He goes, he leaves. He could have just gotten his car and left. Yes. After he went up to that mobile home and Scott's like, yeah, I wrote the note. And he went back to his car. He could have just Drove walked off. away from the whole thing. Yeah. And he didn't choose to do that. And I 100% agree this is first degree murder. And the jury totally got this wrong. And they even have an interview with another juror. That says, and the interviewer is like, did you, did you think that Jonathan was compelling? Did you like him? She's like, oh, I thought he was great. I even went home and told my husband, I'd love to have a son like him. Yeah. Like that, so, I mean, he's this small, attractive looking guy sitting mm-hmm. there, visibly distraught in a mm-hmm. suit, clean cut white guy sitting yes. there. And they feel empathy and sorry for him. And I think that that's what led them to this secondary conviction over yeah. the fact of he has these untreated mental health conditions. And, and I think that, A, yes, when you have a jury that looks like you, it's very easy for a juror to look at a defendant who 
shotgunned someone in the guts Mm -hmm. on purpose two times real close and go, he could be my son. We look just alike. So there is that issue that we have of having juries that look like us. And then on the other hand, I wonder in a smaller, more conservative area, if there is homophobia and you have jurors going, well, shit, if people thought I was gay, I'd be pissed off, too. You know, you have that in the back of your mind of like, I can see why he would have done it. But not and again, Absolutely. hopefully we've come further as a society. Well, this is the nineties, which was a totally different time. And yes. I absolutely think that that could have played a part in it for sure. But I, I don't think that he was uh too incapacitated to be able to form intent. I think he completely formed intent. And I think another small detail that points to it is that when he's standing there with Scott talking to him at the door. And he, in his mind, goes, I'm going to fucking kill him. Because he's like, when I knew that he wrote the note, at quote, quoting the defendant at that time, I decided to kill him. Mm -hmm. And he goes, stay right here. I'm going to go turn my car engine off. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he was going to get the gun to murder this dude. He didn't say, I'm going to fucking kill you. Because as Frank Amador says in Trial by Media... Scott Amador was a veteran. He was super muscular. He was a trained fighter. And he says into the camera, if that if the Jonathan Schmitz tried to fight my brother with a knife or with his bare hands, Scott would have whipped his ass. Mm-hmm. And so I think he tricks him by saying, oh, wait right here. I'll be right back. Which, again, you're in, you're going to come back with a shotgun. Tell me what you're going to do with that shotgun. That's not kill someone. Yep. You didn't come back to have a chat. You nope. came back with a gun to kill him. Yep. 100%. So this jury was stupid. Very. I totally agree. <laughs> to, say, to put it in legal terms, this jury freaking sucked. <laughs> Scott Amador's mother testified before sentencing that Jonathan killed a part of me and my family. Before his sentence was imposed, Jonathan Schmitz read a poem in court that said in part, Will they accept my sorry? I found it, my sorrow. Please accept it today because tomorrow is tomorrow. Jonathan was sentenced to consecutive sentences for two years for the felony firearm conviction and 25 to 50 years for the second-degree murder conviction. His attorneys immediately filed an appeal. After the trial, Jonathan Schmitz's father, Alan, placed the blame not on his son, but on Jenny Jones and her show. Alan told reporters, I hope this changes the talk shows. They're absolutely rotten. Has she not done this? This never would have happened. I think Alan plays a much bigger part in this than he is willing to admit or maybe even knows. I think so. I think he planted seeds of violence, of rage, of homophobia, of anger in that kid. It doesn't uh, absolve Jonathan Schmitz at all because I don't ever think irrational. First of all, you can have whatever feelings you want to feel. I think going on the show is not a humiliating thing. Like what happened? But in his mind, apparently it was. But a rational person's response to being humiliated is not generally to take money from your savings account, purchase a shotgun and go and murder someone intentionally. But this father of his has, I think, helped mold the type of person that maybe would react like that. Yeah. And like Donna said, Jonathan confessed to her his family had questioned his sexuality. And the prosecutor even asked Alan on the stand did you ever talk to Jonathan about his issues with girls? And his dad's like, yeah, all the time, because he had a ton of issues with girls. And I want to make that clear. It was girls, not guys. And the prosecutor's yes. like, yes, sir. It's it was it was girls. He's like, exactly not guys. He says it like three times. He was just terrified that someone might think his kid was gay. And exactly. what if he what if Jonathan was gay? 
let's just, I, I'm not saying he was, I'm not saying he wasn't, I didn't know the guy and I'm not, that's not my story to tell. But if he was, if he had any inkling of that, do you think that he is going to feel comfortable coming out in a household that that's how his father acts about it? Hell no. He's going to be shameful and and will feel humiliated and like he's got to do something to, to right this wrong, which ends up being the most violent thing someone could do. Yeah, he's almost backed into a corner of like, oh, my dad said this is the worst thing, and therefore I believe it's the worst thing. It's almost like an Aaron Hernandez thing where you grow up in yeah. this toxic, homophobic environment. Absolutely. And again, I, I, that doesn't excuse what he did by any means. Mm-mm. I think that his father is way more complicit in this than the Jenny Jones show is, though. Yes. So for him to say this would have never happened had it not been for her, perhaps if he hadn't gone on the show, it may have never happened because... That seemed to be the catalyst of what set everything off. But that doesn't change, like, the feelings and emotions behind what could have happened if it had been revealed at any time that he had a thing for him. Well, and also it it may mean that he had not he would not have killed Scott Amador. But who knows if he's in a bar and he gets hit on by a guy and his response is to go out in the parking lot and stab or shoot or beat or whatever and has a violent visceral reaction to same sex, uh, you know, like someone coming on to him. Yeah. Which, again, is uh, unfortunately happens a lot. And we'll get into that in the second episode. But it's not a rational response to it. And it, it shouldn't be used as a, well, well, wouldn't you be humiliated? Wouldn't you react this way? Hell no. One of my favorite parts in the trial by media episode is when the glad attorney says, can you imagine if every time a woman was hit on a bar by, by, by someone she didn't like that she just killed him? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that's just not something... We can do if this was a woman in this situation at all, it would have been a totally different trial. Exactly. Jonathan Schmitz's conviction was appealed on a technicality involving defective jury selection. During the jury selection process, the court refused to allow the defense to exercise a peremptory strike against a jury panel member. A peremptory strike allows the exclusion of a potential juror without the need for any reason or explanation except for reasons based on race, gender, or national origin. Jury selection in Jonathan's case had taken more than three days to complete. Jurors were questioned on highly personal matters, including mental illness, homosexuality, past embarrassing moments, and betrayal by others. Some jurors were rejected outright based on the answers to their written juror questionnaires. However, one potential juror was not struck from the pool on the second day. Instead, the defense team attempted to strike him on the third day, The court refused to allow it, sustaining an objection by the prosecution that the defense had waived its opportunity to strike the potential juror, having waited a day. This ruling created a reversible error, as peremptory strikes can be exercised for any reason at any time before the final jury is seated. Because of this failure by the trial court judge to allow the defense to strike that one jury member, the Michigan Court of Appeals was forced to reverse Jonathan's conviction and send it back down to the lower court for another trial. You always love when you read a appellate decision that's like, like you can like almost hear them sigh and be like, the defendant is correct. They do get another trial because of one, this one stupid thing, which we have to, I mean, it's well-defined in precedent and the defense attorney, they objected, they preserved the, the error or they preserved the error for appeal. I mean, they 
tried it like it wasn't going to get overturned, but I th- or not overturned, but they tried it like it wasn't going to get a retrial. But I think that they knew based on that because it's well-defined Michigan law, at least, that it is grounds for a retrial. So total that technicality. That wasn't going to be my question. So they knew the whole time, if shit doesn't go our way, we've got this in our back pocket. Yep. Yep. And he and he actually appealed on like four things, but that was you know they're like we appeal on A B C and D and the jury thing was A and the the A was a slam dunk. So the court of appeals is like A is a slam dunk, and we will not really address B C and D because we think they'll be addressed at the retrial. So and one I think one of the other things was showing um, close up graphic images of the shotgun wounds in order to prove intent. And they said that it was more prejudicial than it was probative and it shouldn't have been allowed because it would upset the jury. It would give a more visceral reaction than it would be to let them help help them make a decision on whether there was intent or not. And the judge had let the photos in. And so they had decided that the, the, the appellate court basically said this is something that will be decided at the next trial. So we don't really even need to get into it. Does the prosecution in that case... When they say, because they're the ones that argued like, no, you can't strike this juror because it happened the third day and not the second. Mm-hmm. So they put up the fight for that. Do they not know that law? Yeah, either they didn't know the law or they really, really wanted that guy on the panel. And they I, just I, rolled the dice? I guess so. Yeah. I don't know why you wouldn't, especially I'm guessing in a case like this, the biggest jury selection I've ever witnessed and like seen was when I was an intern at the state level courts. And it was a... Um, mesothelioma lung case but the man had been a smoker and so it was kind of that's why there wasn't like a slam dunk settlement but it's like the disease he died of was like not due to smoking but it was such a hot button issue of like do you have smokers in your life do you know people with cancer in your life that the jury pool was something like 350 people and of course like every person on their the form that said they were a smoker got kicked off every person that said that the, someone in their immediate family was a smoker got i mean tried to get kicked off but for this i don't i don't know why you wouldn't have just let them strike that juror cuz i'm sure this was a huge huge jury pool right so it's not like yeah, you're going to run out of jurors and, and they call it bust the panel. Like if if you strike too many people and then you don't have enough left, you have to start all over again. So I, I don't know why they they made that choice, but it turns out it was the wrong choice. I mean, or the judge. It seems like the only person that knew this law was the the defense. Yeah, it seems like it. So, I mean, this is why if you're going to be in the criminal justice system or any kind of practice of law, you got to know your shit. Or you end up losing. Yeah. Or perhaps it wasn't even something they knew at the time. And then they just, in the process of everything, were doing research to see, like, how can we appeal this if we Mm -hmm. need to? And they were like, oh, fuck, you guys. Mm -hmm. Remember on the third day when this happened? Well, this Mm -hmm. is our get out of jail free card, literally. There's some intern in the defense attorney's office. It's like, I found it. I found the case. (laughs) Because back then it probably would all be on paper. They're just flipping through pages trying to find find the stuff so what do we think well the jury was wrong <laughs> i think so a hundred percent and even though they're so they're wrong and now there's going to be a, another trial that we'll get to in the next episode we'll see maybe do they get it right yes we got another what they call another bite at the apple so yeah and that's that's a problem here too is that you have a defendant uh, you have a defense team who just got a dress rehearsal and now they're they're going to get right. to do it all over again. And they think, oh, well, this witness wasn't very good, so we won't call them. And then we really, really should have called this witness. It would have been a really sl- so you get a do over. 
Does um, Michigan have the death penalty? Oh, great question. I don't. It was never mentioned. Yeah, I never saw anything where that was even on the table. Let's see. It was abolished in 1846 for murder. Michigan is one of the few U.S. states never to have executed anyone following an admission into the Union of the U.S. Well, there you have it. Congratulations, Michigan. Well, I definitely think that... um, uh, I got... To me, the biggest issue here is that... They were being so sensationalist and trying to make such a big deal out of something that is so not a big deal. Mm-hmm. And they tried to turn something that's just a normal thing into this taboo subject and 100% elicit responses. Jenny Jones is a flat out liar. If she says she wasn't trying to get a response out of people, that's her job. That's yeah. what gets her a paycheck. Do I think that that means she's culpable and this guy getting murdered? No. Yeah, I mean, and it we'll happens. we'll see how, how it all plays out in the civil case when they get sued. Yes. But, yeah, I think it's, and, like, the both families of the victim and the assailant say in the documentary, no one's a winner. Like, no. we lost a son. We also lost our son who's going to come back one day. But, I mean, our lives have been forever changed and we lost him for 25 years. It's just, it's so crazy. It's one of those things like we talk about, like, like you said, how eerie is it? You're watching this footage now, knowing in three days, that guy is going to shoot that other guy Mm -hmm. in the chest point blank with a shotgun. Yeah. And none of them at the time know that's going to happen. No one knows that's going to happen. No, they weren't afraid of, of Jonathan Schmitz. They were out drinking with him. They were hanging out with him on the, you know, they flew back with him on the airplane. I wonder... Do you think it's possible something did happen between them romantically that night and he felt so such humiliation and anger and rage about that because perhaps he really was gay and he just was trying to suppress it and be something he really wasn't and that's kind of what caused him to kill him. Yeah, and that's why initially I thought okay, well he knew who wrote that note, you know, yeah. and he my other question is so Donna and Don- Donna, Jonathan Schmitz, and Frank Amador Jr. live in the apartment complex together. Scott Amador lives in a mobile home with a dude named Gary. Yeah. If and Donna said that Scott would come and visit her at the apartment, and that's when she, you know, that's when he saw Jonathan Schmitz for the first time. If they were truly acquaintances as Jonathan and his family and defense attorneys would have you believe that he did not know Scott. He didn't know who he was. I mean, he knew him from like afar and Donna said, Hey, this guy thinks you're hot. And he's like, yeah, whatever. And he says hi to him when he fixes the car, but they're not hanging out. They're not going out except for after the taping of the show. When he woke up that day and found, cause it stands to reason Scott knew where Jonathan lived. Cause they all lived in the same apartment complex. But when he woke up that day, Schmitz and found the note and was like, I want to go see if Scott wrote this. And he gets in his car and he drives to Scott Amador's house. How did he know where Scott Amador lived? If he hadn't never been over there, if they weren't friends, Good if they point. maybe. So did they hook up and he knew where he lived because they had been together? Good point. 
because otherwise it's not like you could google maps and what's he gonna knock on donna's door and be like where the fuck does scott live i'm gonna go fucking kill him like he did there's no testimony that that happened he's not gonna ask frank where his brother lives there's no testimony that that happened how would he know where he lived if they had not spent some kind of time together that's a good point i i think that it's very possible that something romantic happened between them yeah if not if not before i don't think it probably happened before the show because he does genuinely seem like shocked and embarrassed Mm -hmm. and like kind of thrown for a loop when he comes out and the awkward embrace they have does not look like they've ever done that before even been that close to each other before i think it's possible that he was already struggling with his sexuality he finds out this guy's into him they go out that night and go drinking after this taping something happens and then he can't live with what he's done yeah which uh, is something that's implanted in his head by a society and b yeah. his family and his yep. own self you know hatred or whatever but and his this dad whole thing, and everything the whole entire thing is predicated on the homophobic sensationalism of a same-sex attraction which is yep. they used it they milked what is hopefully like i said you and i are both very liberal and we live i think within reasonably liberal areas for, for texas but something for us that's run-of-the-mill that that's just how people are and people like who they like and whatever it was predicated on ew isn't this a weird thing Mm -hmm. and she can't deny that at no point can they say oh it was just a lighthearted show with whatever it's like no fuck you you were exploiting the gay community for ratings and for it to be like lewd and lascivious someone has a crush on you a gay crush you know Mm -hmm. they try to make it really they they try to make it something that it's not yeah 100 percent and for that at the very least, an apology should have come out from that show. I don't know. When did this happen? 1995? 19... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's now 2020. And that show's never come out and said anything to uh, to take any kind of responsibility. But at the very least said, we were wrong for the type of content we were trying to produce and elicit these things over something that is not it should not at all be sensationalized or made to look lewd because it isn't. Yeah, and there there was like a statement from her, but it was very, uh, um, we're very sorry for what happened and we're sorry for the families. But it was never, we realized that we were wrong. What we did back then was homophobic and racist and sexist. Every All those episode topics were mm-hmm. very, very problematic. Oh, oh, when you go back and watch them, they're it's, like... It's kind of they- like how I feel about Howard Stern, like that I, I cringe and I'm disappointed in myself now that i liked mm-hmm. that back then it's the same yes. with those like i'm disappointed in myself that i once would have enjoyed those types of shows and encouraged the behavior that was happening on them because for it's sure disgusting it's 100 it all- disgusting complete exploitive they exploited people they exploited especially lower income people because yep. like you said why would you ever go on this show well somebody offers you a thousand dollars in the p- a paternity test you may say you may not turn that down and you a know? trip to a, ci- a big city absolutely mm-hmm. it's so all very it's, intriguing yeah was, and she came out on a because this episode never aired but they you know the next episode that aired where i mean this was obviously all over the news and everyone knew about it the episode started out with her looking at the camera and being like, we're very sorry for what happened, but the Jenny Jones show is no way in re- responsible for this. The only person responsible for this is the man who pulled the trigger. I mean, they were very clear, like, we are not going to take any blame for this. And this Cover is one ass. person's doing, and and it is Jonathan Schmitz's problem. 
Yeah, and just even if they're not legally culpable, which we'll get to in the next episode, I genuinely believe they're morally culpable for what their oh, yeah. whole show for what they did. So anyway, well, let us know what you guys think. Watch the trial by media episode. It's um, it's pretty eye opening. Also, talk to death the HBO documentary. And we'll get to the second trial and the civil trial, as well as some other things, in next week's episode. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We are a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks, like a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and Patreon-exclusive video and audio content, like our weekly mix bags, where we share three of our favorite things of the week. For more details on specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Patreon in the top right corner to join today. Make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch and keep those pictures coming. And if you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on shop in the top right corner. Thank you to everyone that bought merch during the month of April. As promised, we will be donating all of those sales to the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund. Because of you guys, we're able to donate $520.29. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SinisterhoodPod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at? I am on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I'm on Twitter at MCK versus the world and on Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Lacey Huber. Kim Allen. Courtney Mahaffey. Hannah Fitzgerald. Nicole Zimmerman. Kaylee. GeoNerd. Melissa P. Katie Mueller. Katie Wilkinson. Emily Johnson-Pounds. Mary Anna Donovan. Jessica Hawk. Jennifer. Angela Silliman, Jesse Norris, Megan Parmley, Randy Sanders, Courtney Nelson, Mathilde Umber, Stephanie Whitmore. Thank you guys so much for the, supporting the show. We could not do this without you. We love you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Ha ha ha.